because they're like Fisher Price brand. And uh, but I'm just I'm just not good with my hands. I'm not good at fixing things. I remember when my wife Stephanie was diagnosed with with cancer and her whole medical battle. I remember the dependence that we had on the doctors was like I don't know what we're supposed to do. Right, like we're completely dependent upon the wisdom the Lord has blessed these people with, right? The game plan to get after cancer. So we're all dependent upon different people for all sorts of different things. Some great things to small things like alarm clocks. How many of you are dependent upon alarm clock every morning? All right, some of us are that way. Some of you are dependent upon technology. We need vehicles to function, right? To be able to get where we need to go. So we show dependence on all different, different parts of our life. And I believe the same is in our prayer life. Our big idea for the morning is, is this, is that your prayer life reveals the depths of your dependence upon God. Your prayer life reveals the depths of your dependence on God. And so in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 5, reviewing a little bit about the Lord's prayer, and then we're going to jump in uh, to verse 13 this morning. But it says this in Matthew chapter 5, or 6 verse 5, it says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corner, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And so, Back to verse 5, we're introduced to two different kinds of people. We're introduced to hypocrites, and we're introduced to the Gentiles. And we talked a lot about this passage. It's already been unpacked for us, but ultimately, we don't believe Jesus is concerned about location. We believe he's concerned about the motivation of our prayers. Right? He is after the attitude through which we pursue him. And now we see the hypocrites are ones who love to stand on the street corners so people can see them. Right? Ultimately, they're focused in on their own hearts and their own lives. We see the Gentiles' love. It says they think that they will be heard for their many words in verse 7. Right? Think about that for a minute. That they're so wordy in their prayers that for some reason, um, God's going to like that more. But then we get the heart of it when Jesus says this in verse 5. And when you pray, and in verse 6, but when you pray, in verse 7, and when you pray, verse 9, pray them like this. You see, Jesus is making the observation that those who have experienced life change through him are going to spend time praying. Like, that is what we're going to do. He's, he's thinking that, hey, you've experienced the amazingness of my grace, and so the result is, is you're not praying because you have to, but you're praying because you want to, that you have a desire to spend time in praying with him and getting to know him more. And this is true because... When Jesus died on the cross, we know that the curtain at the temple was torn from top to bottom, which was a visual picture for us even today that we don't have to go through a priest to get to Jesus anymore, but we ourselves are priests and we can go right to him to be in his presence and in his throne room whenever we please. And we've defined prayer in multiple ways throughout the series. We've defined prayer as communication for the sake of communion. We've defined prayer as practicing the presence of God. So how often are you spending time in the presence of God? How often each week, each day, are you taking moments of the day, maybe in the car, maybe at lunch, whatever it is, when are you spending time with God? I feel like at times I have more in common with the hypocrites than I do the Gentiles sometimes in my own life. 
And I don't think that's healthy, right? And Jesus is like, hey, do not be like them. But our prayer life actually reveals if our prayer is about horizontal praise, meaning the glory of me, or vertical praise, the glory of Jesus. And so we see in verse 9, we'll start up here again. Jesus is going to unpack this prayer. He says, pray them like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Isn't it amazing that we have the right to come to God and call him Father? That we have that kind of access? Like he's our dad, he's our father. It says, hallowed be your name. Ultimately, we're confessing that, hey, Jesus, you are holy. You are incredibly great. And I believe we must make the observation of noticing where he's located. Our father in heaven, right? He is on the throne. So the one that we can bring our request to on a daily basis is the one who's ultimately sovereign and in control of all things. And I believe this, that our prayer life is an opportunity for us to confess God's worth to us. When's the last time you told God how worthy he is to you? Not that he needs it from you, but so that you can hear yourself saying out loud his worth. For us to take time to acknowledge his greatness. You see, confessing who he is actually reminds us of who we are. That we are someone who's in desperately need of him. And so this prayer Starts out with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, our Father in heaven, that's a prayer of adoration. Hallowed be your name is a prayer of worship. We have a prayer of provision. Give us this day our daily bread. We have a prayer of confession. Give us or forgive us of our debts or our sins. But today we're going to talk about protection. What do we need protection from? You see, protection also reveals dependence. I remember when I was younger, Pastor Jason, uh, who's my brother, um, he's four years older than me, and we used to play with the neighborhood kids a lot when we were younger, and I know we shared this story a lot, but I used to run my mouth a lot to the neighborhood kids, and um, that, you know, is cool when you're big and strong, but when you're always the smallest kid in the neighborhood, it's not always the wisest, right? And so I would kind of run my mouth, and the reason I felt free to do that is because I had protection, I think that my brother, Jason, would protect me. So my protection actually led to dependence. And so many times he would come and rescue me out of whatever was happening, and uh, he would be mad at me, but he felt like he had to protect me, right? And so I felt this protection. I was grateful that he would come to my rescue. I don't know, I don't remember actually even saying anything. Like, I don't remember what I said specifically, but I do remember um, opening up my big mouth sometimes. But the reality is, Protection reveals dependence. And like we've already established, right, we're dependent on many things. I think the majority of us in this room, we have a job so that we receive a paycheck. We're dependent upon the paycheck coming in to live. If you have kids, your kids are dependent upon you, right? Some of you are stuck in addiction, and your dependence is on the thing that you're addicted to. Some of you have uh, got freedom from addictions, and so your dependence has switched from what's keeping you addicted to the life-changing message of Jesus, and so now you're dependent upon him. But we are dependent upon all sorts of things. But the question we need to consider then, if the big idea is your prayer life reveals the depths of your dependence on God, then we must consider this question. How does your prayer life, how does prayer grow my dependence in God? 
but we're going to pick it up in verse 13 and unpack that. Verse 13 says this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The NIV, I believe, says the evil one as well. I want you to understand this, that your prayer life, prayer, is a constant reminder of our need for Jesus. Prayer is a constant reminder of our need for Jesus. And he has this prayer of protection, Jesus is saying, lead us not into temptation. So here's the question we must consider then. Does God lead us into temptation? Does God tempt us? Because being tempted is ultimately being enticed to sin. Does God ever put you in a position where he's enticing you to choose sin? I believe the answer is found in James chapter 1. In verse 13 through 15, it says this. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so the question is, does the Lord lead us in temptation? What's the answer? No. Right? The Lord does not do that. But what does tempt us? It tells us in the text, right, that our, our own desire is the thing that tempts us. In fact, it tells us that it lures us. Any fishermen here today? Okay, I don't like to fish. Okay. But I got these lures here, okay, and I borrowed them from one of our staff members, Brad. And, you know, lures are meant to trick the fish into thinking that this is something that they want. And so it might look appetizing. I'm even amazed these things have, like, eyes on them. Like, these are... These are pretty detailed, but so the lure comes across, right, in the water, and it's enticing that they want this, and so they're going to try to take a bite into this, right? They're being lured into choosing something, and now what's unique about lures is they can all look different, like this one here, right, looks a little bit cooler to me, all right? It looks a little bit cooler, and so this was in front of a fish. They might be, hey, that's my style. That's the thing that I want, right? And so they're going to bunch and j just jump all over this because they're excited. But when we're lured to choose sin, which our flesh does, our desire does, ultimately, we're believing that we're being provided with something that the Lord can never provide us. We're, we're being tempted and enticed to choose something outside of our relationship with Jesus. That the lure is greater than anything that God will ever provide for me. And the reality is everyone's lure that's going to tempt you and me or whoever else in this room is going to look different. Right? You may like the little small green one. You may like the floppy one like this. Whatever is your style. Right? But the reality is we know what is going to hurt us and pull us. And the reality is they can all look different. But here's the truth about no matter what lure it is, they all have one of these in the middle. And this is meant to hook you. It's meant to hook you. It's meant to grab you. It's meant to hold you in. I want you to understand something. That God never lures us into finding our purpose, our identity, or our meaning outside of his son. He'll never provide that temptation. You see, because you are his. And it tells us in James chapter 1 that our desire leads to one place. And it has a baby and the baby is sin. And the baby leads to what? Death, it said. So our sin, our desires lead one place. Death. You see, God will never tempt us to sin. He will never entice you. He will never put anything in front of you and say, hey, choose this because let's see if you think this is greater than me or not. 
He'll never do that. He'll never pressure you into pursuing pleasure outside of him. He'll never make sin attractive to you. And he doesn't need to because he realizes that our own hearts puts us in that same position. And so when temptation comes, our flesh is ultimately being pressured to choose pleasure outside of God, right? And sometimes it's in something or sometimes it's in, us, in someone. But here's the truth about sin is that sin offers a crazy high. We choose sin because we believe there's something that we're missing or we want some sort of quick fulfillment. And so we choose it. We experience some level of what we would call happiness. But then what happens? See, sin has a crazy low as well. It, It brings crashing guilt and crashing shame all over the place. But here's the truth about choosing Jesus and saying no to sin is that when you choose Jesus, it doesn't have the same high. I want to be honest. Sometimes it's hard, right? We choose the right thing and we battle that. It's like, man, this is really hard to choose this. It's not feeling the level of satisfaction sometimes, but here's the reality. It has zero lows. There's no shame and guilt in that, right? And we see this played out in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were being tempted by the devil. Remember, Satan said to them, if you eat of this tree, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like whom? Like God. So they were being enticed to pursue a sin, and the sin was simply this, that God is holding out on you. That the role that God's given you in the garden, there's something better than that. So check this verse out. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he did what? Notice the verbs in verse 6. I want you to notice the verbs. We have the word saw, we have delight, desired, took, ate, gave, ate. And then in verse 7, we get to experience the guilt and the shame. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, Eve took the fruit and ate it. And then she gave it to her husband. So some of the, some, there must have been some level of fulfillment from that bite. And then Adam ate it, who's supposed to be the responsible husband. And then the next part of the verse, in verse 7, is they immediately realized they were naked. So they start uh, getting leaves and branches together and sewing stuff together to do what? To cover up their sin. And so the first time in the history of the human race, we see people trying to cover up their sin. And it's been going forth from that moment every day since. The first thing we do is try to cover cover up our our shame and our guilt. But here's an observation. Where's the devil at this point? In verse 7, we don't see, and the devil hung out with them. Or the devil was sorry. No, the devil's gone. You see, the devil leaves you to rot in your shame and your guilt. And that's what's taking place here. They're left to deal with it all on their own. They're left to figure it all out. And so their first response is that we're going to make clothes to fix this idea. You see, sin is living for the glory of self over the glory of God. And if we're going to be honest, I think we're pros sometimes at giving into our desires. It's so easy for us to do that. 
But I believe the reason that Jesus left heaven and came crashing into this earth is because he realized that his creation is being dependent upon something that will lead to eternal hell. And his goal was to change that. And he's done that ever since. The gospel was actually blasted out in Genesis 3. We could pack it out or unpack that another time. But Anthony Carter, who wrote a book um, about the benefits of the blood of Jesus for us, he said this about our human condition. He says, the human condition is not just a bucket of airs. It is an ocean of iniquity. So verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not, it says. Here's the truth. We all know that temptation's real. And so the reality of temptation being real should motivate me to be dependent upon Jesus because my motivation is reminding me who he is, where he's located, and who's in control. Right? That he is on top of it all, that I can call him father. You see, as a father, he desires to protect his children. And we see this at the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, right? We receive a right standing. And I love that verse because it doesn't tell us to do anything. It just tells us what Jesus Christ has done. But here's what he did. He became our ocean of iniquity. He became all of our sin. And he transferred into our account his own righteousness. It's amazing. And so we know this, that God doesn't tempt us. But I would go even farther and say, I believe that the Lord has control over what does tempt us. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is a very common verse about temptation. It says this, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, we have we have multiple promises in this verse. The first promise is this. You're not going to face the temptation in your life that a million other people have, that haven't faced. So that means every temptation you face is not unique to you. So that means that it removes any excuse that we want to make or take because of the promise here. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But then we learn about the Lord's faithfulness, right? He says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he also will provide a way of escape. All right, so the truth is, we're never going to face a temptation that we can't handle, right? We see the promise, right? That we're never going to face, never be tempted, never be enticed to sin in such a strong way that, the, that God's not in control over it because he's not going to allow it to come to you if you can't handle it. Now, one of the issues that we face is we like, to t- we like to take this verse and we like to apply it to other parts of our life. So we like to say things like this. The Lord's never going to give you anything that you can't handle. I don't believe that's fine on the Bible. I believe that phrasing is specific to temptation. Because if I can be honest with you, I can tell you when my wife was battling cancer and there was a big up and down roller coaster of that. And there was times, I remember one time we were in the ICU and I thought, this is it. I'm going to lose her this week, right? There was times when I was angry, right? There was times I couldn't handle it. It was much bigger than me. It was much greater than me. I couldn't do it. There was times that my attitude was horrible. You see, I believe that God 100% will absolutely give you things that you cannot handle. Why? Because it forces you to press into him. 
And the more that I'm on my knees demonstrating my dependence on God, God, that I can't do this, God, this is greater than me, God, I need you to come to my rescue once again, the better for me. It's in the place that God can finally get to work in my life. You see, the Lord's going to give you trials you can't handle. The Lord's going to push you in unique ways. He's going to give you things that are bigger than you. And your response can be that I'm either going to press into the greatness of Jesus or I am going to push away. But the reality is the choice is yours. You get to decide what you're going to do. I remember when my wife was getting her care. She had two bone marrow transplants, had both of her hips replaced all before the age of like 28 because she was on such high dose steroids and it kind of kills your bones. Well, on the transplant floor, we got to meet many other patients. And one of them is a, a girl named Sarah, who she's really close with. But we got to meet another girl who, uh, her name was Jessica. And Jessica's case was worse than Steph's. I mean, the steroids were so bad in her body, she couldn't even get her hips replaced. Everything was too bad. Her back was all messed up. It killed a lot of the bones in her back. So she pretty much was bedridden all the time. Here's the other thing about, the unique thing about Jessica is that she had no family and no friends ever come and visit her. Zero. Nothing. And I would make the argument on the sake of, for the sake of her that it was more than she could handle. There wasn't one person in her life besides Steph that could show her how battling cancer with Jesus was different than battling it without Jesus. And she lost her life to cancer. And she was bitter when she passed. And we spent time praying for her. Steph tried to encourage her. Steph would have text conversations with her. But she had no support system. Right? It was too much. She couldn't handle it. And so when we think through temptation, does God lead us into temptation? The answer is no. Does God allow us to be tempted? The answer is yes. Does God control the temptations? He has control. He controls it all. And so God will never lead us into temptation. But the question is then this, does God, where does God lead us? Because I think we can look all over scripture and see the Lord leading people, right? He's in control. And if he is your father, if you can confess that he is holy, that he's done a mighty work in your life, then we can rest in this fact that he sees all of time for all of eternity. And so while we're here on this earth, our life and our view of life is totally living moment by moment, right? We see what's right in front of our face, but God sees all of eternity from start to finish. So that means in your life, he sees all the big things that are going to come into your life and the things that could rock your world. He sees all of that. And he knows how this is going to end in your good and for his glory. And so we can rest in those moments. So what does God do? I believe God allows tests to come in our life. Check out this text from James chapter 1. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James is making an observation that trials are going to be part of everyday life, isn't he? Well, why do we face trials? We face trials because it proves the testing of our faith. Right? It proves steadfastness in our life. And so we could make some unique observations here that, um, about this word that's for, used for trials here and the word that's used for temptation in Matthew 6, and that it's the same word. 
But the context of Matthew 6 is about enticement to sin. The context here in James chapter 1 is about tests and uh, what the Lord allows to come into our life. See, testing from God is never to get you to entice you to sin, but it's always to get you to choose what's right. So testing and temptation are ultimately different, right? But God doesn't test us so he can learn about us because he knows all things already. He understands it all. He knows who you are. But so then why does God allow tests? I think the answer, that the reason that God, that God allows tests is because the test reveals how far the gospel's come in my life. It reveals how far I've grown, right? And so God's like, hey, Josh, look how far you've come. That is awesome. You've come a long way. All right, I've known Jesus since I was seven years old. Almost 26 years now. Some of you have been saved significantly longer than that. Some of you have been saved under a year. But the goal of the gospel is for you to continue to grow. And so the testing proves how far you've come. But the testing also proves how far we still have to go. Right? Which is, which is good. Right? That's, that's a healthy thing. You see, testing produces character. Character is who you are as a person. It has been said that the measure of a man is based on what he would do if he was never found out. A character is a long habit continued. And I believe that this is seen in the life of Jesus. You see, in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus Christ is baptized, it says the heavens are open and the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well, what? Pleased. That's an identity statement about Jesus, that he is mine. And then the very next verse, Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Did God allow him to be tempted? The answer is yes. Did God do the tempting? No. You see, Satan did the tempting. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we've been, yet he's without sin. Right? He never once chose sin. So tests are important because tests prove what we know. I remember when I was in high school, I took um, Spanish class. Anyone, anyone else take Spanish? Okay. Maybe some of you took it in college. That was not going to be me, okay? Um, I'm terrible at language. I'm actually terrible at the English language. So Spanish was a real stretch for me. And when I was in high school, the way that we were tested in Spanish class was that we had to stand up in front of class and we had to read a dialogue with uh, another classmate. And the teacher, who was pretty fluent in Spanish, would sit in the back of the room just listening and grading us on our pronunciation of the Spanish words. And I remember telling my friend who I was going up to do this test with, I said, listen, I said, you're really good at this. I said, so you read in Spanish, I'm going to read in English. And so we get up there, we start doing the reading, the test has started. About 50% of the way through, she says, stop. See, she was so good at Spanish and English that I was hoping she wouldn't catch it. And she said, uh, hey, Josh Toby, I said, yep. Are you reading that in English? Yep. What? This is Spanish class, right? I said, yeah, but I'm trying to get English done first before I move on to another language. Right? I didn't do very good at the test. It wasn't good. Right? It proved that I was not good at it. That, that's what the test proved. But the Lord tests us. We see it in James 1. We also see it in many other scriptures. Let me give you another example. The life of Abraham. What did God tell Abraham? Abraham, step outside your tent and take a look at all the stars in the sky. You see all those stars? I'm going to bless you as numerous as the stars are in the sky. It's going to be great. I'm going to bless you. 
And God promised a blessing by him and Sarah having a son named Isaac. How old was Abraham? He was 100 years old when he had this child. So imagine when God made the promise, step outside your tent, look at the stars. Imagine the dreams they probably started to form in their mind. Man, this is going to be awesome. God's going to bless us like crazy. I can't wait. This, I'm just, imagine if it was me, the dreams that would dwell up about the blessings of the Lord that he's going to provide for us. But then Genesis 22, verse 1 and 2 says this. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on which of the mountains I will tell you. Abraham, what are you going to do? Are you going to do what God's asked you to do? But God, I have these dreams in my mind of what you promised me. Abraham, are you going to trust me? Abraham, do you what if you lost your dream, Abraham, but you still ended up with God? Is that enough for you? Or do you have to have the dream to be satisfied in me? And I love what Abraham says or what is said about Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 19. It says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he, didn't, he did receive him back. And so here's the reality. Abraham's faith was incredible. You see, his faith was so great that he believed that God could raise someone from the dead. And at this point in history, God hadn't risen anyone from the dead. So he was believing that the Lord could do the impossible, that if God actually had him go through of killing his son Isaac, that God's power was able to bring him back from the dead. This is incredible faith right here in Hebrews chapter 11. Significant. Because Abraham realized that his view was limited, that God was going to be doing something. And so he was just, God, I'm going to be dependent upon you. God, do you want me to do this? This sounds crazy, God. Like, this isn't normal on planet Earth that we kill our own kids. But you know what? I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. It's amazing, his test and uh, how he overcame that. And I wonder, um, would that be a test that would be too much for you to handle? I would say so, right? That'd be scary. That'd be a scary test. And so your prayer life reveals the depths of your dependence on God Right? How does God grow my dependence in God? How does, sorry, how does prayer grow my dependence in God? When I pray, I have a constant reminder of my need for Jesus. Here's point number two. That prayer is the key to making God's wants your wants. Prayer is the key to making God's wants your wants. And so we see in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer of dependence. It is a prayer that's demonstrating incredible humility, realizing that we are not in control, but that God is in control. And so God wants to protect us because God wants what's best for us. And so how do we gauge whether we should be dependent upon God? I believe the answer is that we look at the Lord's track record in our life, right? How has he revealed his faithfulness to you? We turn to God and we pray this prayer of protection because God has a history of delivering us, doesn't he? That he has rescued us and he has saved us from many things. We deserve death, but now he's changed our eternal outcome and we have life. You see, his faithfulness amidst our faithlessness motivates me to be dependent upon him. He's incredibly faithful. And the truth is, is that he dealt with our most urgent 
biggest need we'll ever have, which is a need for a savior. So that then means this, the temptations that we face, the trials that we face, whether how big or small, it just simply means this, that cancer is nothing to a holy God. It's minimal. It is small. He is great. And so I trust him because of the faithfulness of his track record. That leads me to be dependent upon him. And so what do we need protection from? According to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, the second part says, but deliver us from evil or the, and the evil one. You see, the devil is real. And so when God tests us for good, the devil wants to exploit those tests for your ruin. He wants to get after you. He wants to accuse you of failure over and over and over again. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it actually gives us a picture of Satan standing before God and constantly just bringing accusations against believers. That's part of his role of what he does. And so what does God want? If the, my prayer life puts me in a place of making God's wants my wants, right? How do I end up in that spot? In 1 Peter Chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Or he's ready to devour you. So what does God want according to that verse? He wants us to be watchful. Or he wants us to be ready. That means that you know your weaknesses. You know the company you need to stay away. You know the influences that you need to keep out of your life. You know the boundaries for you. You're being watchful. You're being sober-minded. You're paying attention. Why? Because the adversary is real. It's been said, and I don't know who said it, but the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. But he's your enemy He's your adversary and he is waiting to destroy you. He wants to destroy you. It tells us in uh, 1 Peter 5 that he is a roaring lion, right? He's not a cuddly lion or a cute lion. He is ready to destroy us, right? He's ready to feast on believers, to discourage them in the relationship with Jesus and keep unbelievers from believing. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 tells us that he blinds the minds of unbelievers, I just want to say, Lord, keep us from sin. Keep us from situations that we might choose to say no to you and yes to sin. Because here's the reality. The enemy is ready for war. He's ready for battle. And so our prayer life is actually an avenue through which we prepare to fight. But this is the awesome beauty for believers. The war has already been won. But there are many battles happening in our life every day. Right? Every day we face a small battles. But the truth is, Jesus wins. If you would go to YouTube, you can type in uh, the lion man. Right? His name is um, Kevin Richardson. And he raised these baby lions and he took them out and kind of released them out in the wilderness or something. It's like there's multiple like 50-minute videos of him on YouTube going out visiting his lions with his GoPro cameras and stuff like that. And he arrives in a Jeep. He gets out of the Jeep. His friends stay in the Jeep, which is what I would be doing. And he calls them out by name. Like he's named them all. And he whistles. And all of a sudden, the lions pop their heads up and they just start running at him. I'm like, oh, this is not going to be good. And they like jump on him and they knock him over and they lick his face. Like they're really excited to see him. And then they attack the Jeep. But that's not, it wasn't the same kind of cuddly love then. 
You see, he didn't know those people in the Jeep, the lion. So they were attacking the Jeep. So the Jeep went down the road, just kept like going 50 miles an hour away. And the lions were just chasing after it. But the video, 50 minutes, shows him swimming with the lions and cuddling with the lions and having just fun with them. Does the same thing with hyenas. See, they've decided that he's in, he thinks. I'm sure his YouTube clips will be over at some point. But the reality is, he, he raised them. He, he tried to teach them. He tamed them, he thinks. And we try to do the same thing with our sin. We try to tame it. We realize that it's dangerous, but we fail to have an accurate picture of that it costs God his best. You see, we want the benefits of the cross while all at the same time taming our sin. And so if that's the case, we can't make this prayer. Lord, keep us from temptation but de- and deliver us, Lord, from evil. We can't make that confession because we're actually in love with the very thing that leads to death. You can't tame sin because sin does one thing. It destroys us and leads to hell. So unless Jesus, the remedy, arrived on the scene and it changed our eternal outcome, that's where we would end up. So the question that we must consider is this, um, in your love for sin, would you still love it if you realized it was going to lead you to hell? You see, our battles with sin our battles with realizing our flesh is enticing us, our battles with realizing the devil wants and will at times entice you should bring us to our knees to the Father. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse uh, 9, it says, resist the devil. Resist him, firm in your faith. So how do we resist them? By being firm in our faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is grace activated. And I would make the observation that grace is a game changer. And I believe it's all over Matthew chapter 6. You see, the fact that we can call him Father is grace, right? The fact that we can come and pray to him is grace. You see, God's protection is grace. God, keep the devil away. That is grace. And we go to God because he's delivered us and he has rescued us from our sin, the roaring lion. And so while Satan may try and prove to God that you are worthless because of your sin struggles, God has already made his mind up about you. You see, he knows your past failures. He knows your present failures. He knows all the good and the bad about you, but yet he still desires for you to know him in an intimate and personal way. And so the, what are God's wants? It's that you are watchful, that you are sober-minded, that you know your weaknesses, that you stay away from things that would tempt you. And the more I have communion with God, the more I'm in the presence of God, the result is that my broken heart starts to align with God's heart. And he's amazing because it's not always what I want, but he's always providing the very thing that I need, not just your physical needs, but your spiritual needs as well. So he provides all the protection at the perfect time. He's never late. He's never early. And so how are our needs different than our wants? Some of you probably pray, Lord, please help this business deal to go through. Lord, please help me to get an A on this test. But the more I spend time with God in the presence of God, having communion with God, the more I'm going to realize what it is that God actually wants for me. 
And we're going to realize that God's wants are actually the thing that I need. And so the gospel is what propels us to be incredible disciples, dads, bosses, coworkers, students for his glory. Charles Spurgeon says this about prayer. He says, because private prayer is a hidden part of our life, it's all too easy to neglect it. After all, we will know whether we have taken the time to be alone with God. Or, sorry. After all, who will know whether we have taken the time to be alone with God? But we can be certain that any weaknesses in our personal life will eventually manifest itself in corresponding weakness in our, in our uh, public life. So why do we struggle with prayer? Because we're busy. Hey, Lord, you don't understand. I got my schedule, my kids' schedules, their sports schedules. It's fall. It's, it's, it's too busy right now. I don't have time to spend with you in prayer. Charles Spurgeon also says this. He says, God always gives us enough time for our secondary duties. He must give us time for our primary ones. You see, our big idea is that prayer reveals the depths of our dependence on God. You see, prayer is a constant reminder of our need for Jesus. Prayer is the avenue that we can take to make God wants God's wants, our wants. And so what do I mean by this? We don't need prayer if we don't live our life with anything at stake. Right? I don't need prayer in my life if I don't live, if there's nothing at stake in my life. And so I don't need prayer when I'm watching TV. I don't need prayer when I'm living comfortably. I don't need prayer if I'm just hanging out with my friends. But if I want to risk my life for the glory of Jesus Christ, I'm desperately going to need prayer. If you want to make much of him, you're going to need prayer. If you want your unsafe friends to experience the life change that you've experienced, you're going to need prayer. If you want to live for the mission that God has called you on, you're desperately going to need prayer. You see, we struggle with prayer because we don't live our life in a way of needing God to come through for us. We want comfort. We want safe. We want quick, meaningless wants over seeking out the one who provides all our needs. And so prayer, I believe, is an opportunity for you to communicate the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Because if we don't see that we're very bad, we cannot see that he is very good. And so instead of going to God to realize that we just want our wants fulfilled, when we realize who he is and what he's done, we're gonna, our hearts are going to align with what it is that he has for us. So the end result is that my needs actually become my wants. You see, I want the same thing that God wants. And at the end, more than anything, I want the one who's providing the needs. And I believe prayer is a key avenue through which God can receive glory in your life. You see, prayer empowers us to live for the glory of him. Prayer gives us a godly perspective. The design then of our prayers needs to be that we get this incredible relationship and God gets crazy glory but we must check our motivation and we must check our attitude because your attitude in prayer reveals the object of your prayer. And the condition of your daily walk with Jesus is gauged by your prayer life. And last quote as we wrap up our morning. Charles Spurgeon says this, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayers. So what does your prayer life reveal about your dependence? Does your prayer life reveal dependence on you or on God? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, Lord, and the awesome opportunity we have just to come together each week and uh, 
worship you through song, Lord. Open up your word and digest what it is that you have for us. So as we wrap up this series on prayer, Lord, I, I pray that you'll reveal to us our incredible need to be in tune with your spirit. I pray you'll help us understand that the more that we pray, Lord, the more that we're revealing our, that we're dependent upon you. And I know that we each day need to give away ourselves and continue to pursue you. And so I just pray that you'll give us avenues to be dependent upon you. And sometimes that may mean huge tests and huge trials. But we know, Lord, when those things come in our life, that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you have your hands all over it. And for some reason, in some way, this is going to result in our good. And so I pray that we'll realize that who you are and what you've done for us actually motivates us to want to have incredible communion with him. In your name, amen.